0: Hello, and welcome to the February 2016 Harvard Medical LabCast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Stephanie Dugin. Our regular co-host, David Cameron, has left us for a new job at Harvard. So I have roped my colleague, Jake Miller, into co-hosting instead. Thanks, Jake. You're welcome. We miss David, but we do have a terrific topic for today's conversation. HMS professor Ting Wu spoke with me about genetics research and space travel.
1: You know, Joni Mitchell and Neil deGrasse Tyson like to say that we're made of stardust, but it's a long way from being made of elements that were furnished inside of stars to packing up and leaving Earth.
0: True. And I, perhaps like you and like them, am such a geek about space travel now and in the imagined future. So you will have to forgive my enthusiasm during the conversation. But it turns out that many scientists are excited too about exploring how genetics can improve human life beyond Earth. HMS just this month launched a consortium for space genetics that you can learn about on our website. And Ting talks about work going on in her lab, in the genetics department, and across the country on topics ranging from protection against cosmic radiation damage to how people can stay physically and mentally healthy on trips that might last 20 years or even multiple generations.
1: Far out, man. That's one (laughs) cosmic trip.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's get to the interview. Thank you for coming to talk with us today.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: So you actually are the one who suggested this topic, and I would love to know why. What attracted you to thinking about genetics as it applies to space and space travel?
2: I think like many people, I've always been interested in space. Um, I remember when my father took me to the ocean, and I could see the curvature of the Earth. I, I suddenly felt a little claustrophobic. (laughs) so I could see that the Earth was small. But more recently, I think what brought me to this topic very seriously is that there are astronauts who go into space and come back with serious health issues, Uh or they have serious health issues in space. We are at a medical school, and our job is to address ailments for the human species, Mm -hmm. regardless of how they became ill. And so we need to take care of our astronauts. There have been over 500 people who have spent significant amount of time in space, and we need to start thinking about that issue. The other piece is that, um, as you know, I run the Personal Genetics Education Project, Mm -hmm. and we spend a lot of time thinking about where personal genetics is going, and whether our communities are prepared for the decisions that they will need to make uh, the choices that they'll have for their life and their work and their play. And um, one interesting intersection is the application of genetics, genetic technology, genetic information for living, working, and playing in space.
0: So where does genetics intersect with space travel now or in the science fiction theoretical future?
2: Space, we'll start with now. Okay. (laughs) Then we can get to the science fiction later. So I think it, the intersection is just beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, of course, it's 100% intersected <laughs> because we, when human beings go into space, they bring their genomes with them. Uh-huh. And the way they behave, the way they respond to the stresses of space depends a lot on their genome. Mm-hmm. I think as, as with any job on Earth, the hope is that information about a person's genetics can help enhance their ability to do their job, enjoy their job, mm-hmm. and enjoy their life. So part of it is using the genetics to help prepare an astronaut to know how they're going to respond to the stresses in space. And to best prepare themselves when they come back from space to recover mm-hmm. as efficiently and effectively as possible. For example, it's well known that long-term stays in space lead to bone loss. Mm-hmm. Many astronauts suffer ocular problems, Mm -hmm. and there is no way currently that an astronaut can avoid uh, the increase in cosmic irradiation and Mm -hmm. therefore damage to their body, especially their genome. So understanding what the genetic capacity of an individual is to, for example, repair damaged chromosomes will help that astronaut understand what vulnerabilities he or she may have
0: so when you shoot somebody up into a spaceship um, they don't have the protection of earth's atmosphere anymore right so they're much more exposed to this bombardment of cosmic radiation and that can't be good for their dna um, if i remember correctly that's something that you're studying here in your lab
2: yes so actually many labs study the process of dna damage and dna repair in fact um, Beautiful studies have revealed the pathway of genes that get turned on and some of them get turned off. Uh, These genes make products that detect damage and then enable that damage to be repaired. Hopefully, perfectly, Mm -hmm. but sometimes a little imperfectly. Mm -hmm. The better we can change that balance towards the perfect, the better we are and that is why much work has been done to try and understand the DNA damage repair pathway. My lab has a slightly different take and we came to it somewhat oddly. (laughs) My lab studies very basic um, properties of chromosomes, in particular how chromosomes are placed inside the nucleus. We mm-hmm. believe that the placement of chromosomes and the way they're folded will one day be as, um, as strongly considered heritable material as we now think of um, DNA and epigenetic marks. So in the process of studying that, we were made aware of a very strange set of sequences called ultra-conserved elements. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to tell you now is really speculative. We like this model. We are studying it fully aware that we may be wrong, but it's just it's been great fun and the model, while it could well be wrong, helps us to frame our experiments.
0: Okay, disclaimer noted. <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs> our model is that these very strange sequences which seem to have resisted change for three to five hundred million years. That's well before the dinosaurs. It's before reptiles, birds, and mammals diverged from each other. Long time ago. Long, long time ago. These sequences have not changed, and we really, the field, by we, I mean the field, has no well-accepted, proven explanation for their, their ability to withstand all those years while they're Brother and sister sequences have been mutated and changed, mm-hmm. they have not. Through a, through a set of arguments I won't go into now, we think that these sequences do a very special thing and um, basically their job is not to change. And in order not to change, they manage to maintain the integrity of the genome that's around them. Mm. And when they see too much damage going on, they actually send up red flags and cause that cell to be culled from the body. So the simple uh, connection to space is this. If we can understand how these sequences work, maybe we could induce them to be even better in astronauts. So astronauts can go into space, their DNA can get damaged. We know it gets damaged much more in space than here on Earth. But when it's damaged badly, those cells are simply culled from their body. Mm and are not allowed to develop into tumors, which is one of the outcomes we think happens uh, when the genome is damaged badly. Interesting.
0: So thinking again about the different ways that the study of genetics can be applied to people going into space, um, a couple of years ago you co-hosted a seminar that was held here at HMS where you had people from the Department of Genetics and then people from Jet Propulsion Lab, people from all over the country who came and just shared their thoughts speculative or based in near future or current research on all of the different ways that the study of genetics could improve the lives of astronauts and help humanity you know g- get off the planet that birthed them you know now or in the distant future when we have somehow destroyed our planet beyond being able to live on it um, which was great fun. I was able to go and I know you talked a little bit about, the ultra conserved elements there but there is a lot being discussed about all the different ways that space travel can impact the human body and what we might be able to do to improve that experience so what was that like for you to be part of it was
2: it was great fun i will say in all my years as a research scientist i have never seen the instantaneous excitement over a speaker or a symposium, as I, as I saw for that particular event. I think that was one of the most rewarding parts of the symposium. Now, Adam Steltner came and told a beautiful story about putting curiosity in Mars, very inspiring story. And then we had Dorit Donneville come from the National Space Biomedical Research Institute. She summarized a lot of the research that she oversees having to do with many physiological parts mm-hmm. of, uh, of our body. And then we had a number of faculty from the Department of Genetics. I'd like to point out an interesting piece that um, Susan Demecki mentioned, mm-hmm. which is the concern about how human beings can survive in terms of their behavior, how, whether they're happy or not in space. The stress on a person's sense of well-being. There are many who believe that in spite of all the physical stresses, on human beings that makes travel in space difficult. It's actually the stresses on an astronaut's mind that people are most concerned about. And she mentioned how, uh, in some contexts, chess is banned.
0: Chess is banned. Chess is banned,
2: right, in space. (laughs) Because in a small, confined space, the stress of chess (laughs) can be a little too difficult. My goodness. Yeah, so Susan talked a lot about her studies of understanding how the brain uh, is wired, what parts of the brain um, control breathing rate or um, emotions. So that is a a very important part of space genetics that people often don't think of as... uh, as something that needs to be addressed.
0: I would say Ashton's that would be field. unexpected, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've, I've talked with people from NASA, and they they generally agree. That is a piece that has to be solved. And these long trips, they're talking about trips that will take 10 or more years going one way uh, with just a small group of people. And after a while, you can imagine that that's one that's going to w- weigh most heavily. That's right. And then um, we also had people, uh, Bruce Yankner talked about the impact on cognition. We, people in space need to st- be on the mark all the time, mm-hmm. stay on their toes. What happens uh, to an aging brain, mm-hmm. an aging brain under space? Can we understand what molecules, what genes protect the brain, what genes don't? Um, Gary Rufkin talked about trying to understand if life has already arrived on certain planets, Mars, for example, before we get there. It helps us understand where we come from, where we're going, Mm -hmm. how much we want to protect a planet when we arrive there. Mm -hmm. George Church talked about what some people have come to call protective variants. So these are variations in the genome that, for example, can increase your bone density. Uh Might that be useful in counteracting bone loss? Have to see. There are variants that can um, Reduce pain sensation. Will that be useful in cases where you might have to do, for example, surgery in space? We talked about the microbiome, the issues of whether we want to bring our microbiome into space or leave it behind. Are there certain, I know that uh, in the microbiome world, people are wondering how much the microbiome affects one's day to day sense of well being. Will that help?
0: So there could be some variants that astronauts have that are beneficial to the special types of stresses that you would experience during space travel long or short term. Um, I can imagine a future in which that sparks all kinds of debates about who gets selected for those kinds of programs. you know do you do you choose people to become astronauts who have those variants or do you somehow? Engineer those variants to whomever is chosen to go and obviously we don't have answers for any of that But I can imagine that would fire people up.
2: Yes, and Those are very good questions that I think are on the table people Recognize very much all the potential benefits of genetics and they really want to maximize the benefits bringing in as little as possible confounding negative aspects Mm -hmm. of genetic information Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the topics that is going to engage people, and thank goodness if it does, because we need many, many different kinds of input to understand how we're going to answer those questions.
0: So, okay, you promised we could get to the science fiction stuff. One of the last speakers at that symposium was uh, David Sinclair, and he was spinning out all these fun speculations about if we're going to go on these multi-generational space trips to, I don't know, other solar systems, other galaxies, that uh, maybe there would be ways that we could tweak the human genome so that people would live longer. Yes. Or that we could somehow engineer the babies that are born in space to be more adapted to that environment. I mean, it was super fun to think about. Is that something that you think about, too?
2: So, yes, I think about it from all different points of view. These trips are very long. How are you going to get to some of those planets that are so far away. We're talking about generations mm-hmm. of humans. And one strategy is to figure out how peop- a person can take off from Earth and live the entire set of years and arrive at the other end fully functional and able to do the task. Right. Another strategy is to figure out a way where that person can have progeny with other people and train them knowing that those progeny will want to do that task Mm -hmm. at the other end. That's a tall order. Another thing we think about is the science fiction-like possibility of holding a person in a developed state, trained and ready, holding them so they do not change and do not age and end up generations later ready to go.
0: Like in one of those icy cryopods.
2: Exactly. <laughs> and then there's uh, how you hold them. Do you hold them in their current state? Uh-huh. Do you freeze them? Uh-huh. Do you dry them down? <laughs> Do you print them? Wow. These are all things that are on the table to think about. I can tell you there are no technologies now that make anyone confident that any of these sure. will work. But... Um, the past hundred years of genetic research have shown us that we can do some pretty amazing things.
0: And you have a postdoc coming to your lab this summer, is it? Spring. Who's gonna be this spring, very soon, who's gonna be working exclusively on a project related to space. Tell me more.
2: So my laboratory, as I mentioned earlier, is very interested in how the genome is arranged and packaged in the nucleus. It's been a long project. It's, we've been building to this point over several years. And the first step was to try and develop a technology that would allow us to see the genome at the resolution we would need to see it at in order to understand folding. Okay. So, one question we have is when you take away gravity, how is it going to affect that kind of packaging? Huh. Now, we don't, we really don't know.
0: It might do nothing or it might turn everything haywire?
2: It might do nothing. It may be that the genome has no sense of gravity or it may cause some changes which may have absolutely no effect on how the genome behaves. Or it may have some changes that will over time have um, a degrading effect on the way the genome behaves. If it's the third one, then we need to start to think very seriously about how to counteract those Mm -hmm. results or to generate spaceships that will be able to recreate gravity for our astronauts for very, very long-term travel. You mentioned uh, David Sinclair's discussion at that symposium Mm -hmm. about um, having children in space. Mm -hmm. Development is a very delicate time. Mm -hmm. It may be that adults can go into space and these changes to their genome really won't matter too much. But development is based on thousands, millions of very precise decisions. And so we would need to know in, for example, mice, um, as they develop, what happens to the chromatin structure, or the structure of the genome. And so what Hoy is going to do, my postdoc who's coming in the spring, is to, we're collaborating with some individuals who will be able to get us cells from space, and we're going to look at, compare the genome structure of cells from space and cells on Earth to see if we can see a difference.
0: I was going to ask how you study something like that. Do you just do your experiments up on a spacecraft, or do you get to put them in one of those planes that just drops the gravity out from under you?
2: So we formed a collaboration with Bruce Hammer at the University of Minnesota. He grows cells, I believe, in the International Space Station, mm-hmm. and will be able to provide those to us. He also has developed a machine that tries to simulate or simulates microgravity, and will be able to get cells from... That machine, too.
0: That just sounds like fun. All of this stuff sounds like fun. Is it fun to work on? Is it fun to think about? It's great fun. It's fun to think about.
2: It's fun to talk about. I think that scientists love getting out of their comfort zone, <laughs> going to places where they're not sure if they're going to succeed or fail. There's great excitement there. And
0: going where no geneticist has gone before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, um,
2: and seeing what we can see, this is one of these situations where we can just collect data and learn something entirely new without having to go out and prove something. Of course, we would love to be able to prove that it's safe to spend a long time in space. Whether or not that turns out to be the case, I don't know, but it's important to find out.
0: Do you have an ultimate hope for what your projects or your postdoc's projects or your colleagues' projects might ultimately lead to?
2: I would love it if we could make our astronauts safer. It would be great if what we find enables us to go further in space and learn things that we can't even dream of right now. And I'm truly hoping that what we learn, for example, about these ultra-conserved elements will be able to help um, general health issues on Earth. We think that cancer is one of those diseases that have escaped the ultraconserve element surveillance system and so if we can hone that system or up that system in individuals that have cancer maybe we can literally just cull those cancer cells right out of a person's body
0: that's a much more compassionate answer than maybe saying that you want them to name the first terraformed settlement after you or something <laughs>
2: <laughs> i would give that up in a moment if we could Address, address these diseases.
0: I guess that's a great note to end on. <laughs> thank you for your interest. Oh, thank you for sharing all of these. Definite food for thought. And now for this month's abstract.
1: Birth control pills or oral contraceptives are more than 99% effective with diligent use. Still, some women do become pregnant while taking these pills or soon after stopping them. That means their unborn children may be exposed to the hormones in the pills and very little is known about whether that causes any health consequences. A new study from researchers at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health offers some good news. They found that taking oral contraceptives just before or during pregnancy does not increase the risk of birth defects. Working with colleagues in Denmark, the team analyzed data from multiple Danish health registries between 1997 and 2011. The registries included information about 900,000 live born infants and the health of each child one year later. The researchers estimated oral contraceptive use based on the mother's last prescription fill date. About one-fifth of the women in the study had never used oral contraceptives before becoming pregnant. More than two-thirds had stopped using oral contraceptives at least three months before becoming pregnant, eight percent had stopped within three months of becoming pregnant, and 1% had used oral contraceptives after becoming pregnant. The researchers found that the prevalence of major birth defects, about 25 for every 1,000 live births, was equal across all the women, regardless of whether they were on the pill. The numbers remained consistent even when the researchers factored in pregnancies that ended as stillbirths or induced abortions. The first author of the study, Brittany Charlton, says the results should reassure women and their healthcare providers.
0: This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our producer, Rick Grolo. To learn more about the research discussed in this podcast or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Harvard Med, or like us on Facebook. Now we leave you with an outtake from our interview, involving an imaging technique called Fluorescent In-Situ Hybridization, or FISH for short. So the
2: first step was to develop a, a new kind of probe that would allow us to visualize the single-copy parts of the genome. Mm-hmm. And Brian Bellavote spearheaded that project, led to the development of a new kind of fish probe, which we call paints. Fish. Fish, <laughs> that's right. Fish in space. <laughs> and should i start that again (laughs) i think that was perfect (laughs) okay let me do that again i don't know why I said fish okay there are a lot of jokes about fish we talk about dead fish live fish experiments okay